Legislation was my dream job. My whistleblowing was apolitical and in the spirit of upholding my oath. Nonetheless, the FBI cynically elected to close ranks and attack the messenger. The FBI will crush you. This government will crush you and your family if you try to expose the truth about things that they are doing that are wrong. We are all examples of that. Joining us now are Steve Friend and Garrett O'Boyle. Thanks for joining us, fellas. FBI whistleblowers Steve Friend and Garrett O'Boyle both join us now. Gentlemen, so glad to have you on the program. Thank you for your testimony. We need more folks like you, and I'm sure more people are going to be from your background are going to be giving you guys more intel as you're sharing that with the rest of us. We can kind of see that this is becoming normal for them to be held accountable because I think especially an institution that we pay their salaries, they need to be held accountable. I think a lot of people do share our, our beliefs and convictions. I think they just aren't at the point that Steve and I and others have gotten to. They're too afraid. age, but facts are in short supply. Reject the noise, ask bold questions, and pursue the truth. With FBI whistleblowers and founding suspendables, Garrett O'Boyle and Steve Friend. This is the American Radicals Podcast. It is the American Radicals Podcast, and in the chair and leading you along the way, is at real Steve Friend, your host, Steve Friend. Uh, Garrett O'Boyle, not with us again, still on the road, travailing the country from North Dakota. He will be back with us very shortly. Uh, but today, I'm going to be along with a guest. We want to respect our guest's time and get right to it, because today we're going to be talking about embracing the fight. Looking at with the cultural war that we're sort of involved in right now, we've touched on it in the past. Uh, and this is definitely one of the uh, one of the warriors I'm, we're glad to have on our side, exposing the truth, bringing it to us hard hitting. Uh, this is Miss Carrie Pickett from The Washington Times. She's a journalist there. She's a senior congressional reporter. And I'm happy and proud to have her alongside here. And we want to talk to her about uh, some of the, the work that she's been doing, because it seems to me as a consumer of the news, uh, and anything that that touches on FBI weaponization or malfeasance, that's always sort of catching my eye. And more often than not, the name in the byline is Carrie Pickett. Uh, she's been an acquaintance of mine for about a year now, and uh, and I'm happy that she could she could join me today. How are you doing this morning, Carrie? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having fantastic. me. Fantastic. Um, uh, I, I really want to get into some of the work you're doing. You know, we were talking offline before we started, and uh, you sent me a sl slew of stories just pertaining to the FBI that you're working on. I know that's only a small snippet of actually the work you do. It's pretty amazing. We were joking, like, you can't even keep track of all your stories at once. And I, I said, look, I, I arrested a lot of guys. I, I couldn't tell you the name of everyone arrested. And whenever you tell someone or they ask you a question about some story you wrote, uh, you're like, uh, what, what was that? It, it just seems to be. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I've only sent you the stories that I've done this past year. Uh, I'd like to, uh, you know, to tell you that uh, I, I've been doing this. Uh, I've been covering the FBI for the past uh, decade. Uh, you know, you talk and talking about government whistleblowers going back to when I was uh, working at the Daily Caller, a little bit over at Breitbart um as as well yeah i mean i, I i've been covering um uh, like you know guys over at the fbi who've been speaking out uh going way back when some people think oh you've just 
you know, started to just jump on this bandwagon. No, 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 no. I mean, the reason why I've, I've had an interest in this is because a lot of guys had been speaking out, not just even this past decade, for decades. I, and, and so it seems like to me, it's just been like yesterday. But as you very well know from like old timers who've uh, been over at the Bureau and who have told you their own experiences, this has been going on for many, 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 many years. It's really amazing. I, sort of the scales fell away from my eyes. I've only really been in this for a little over a year. And, and just even looking at this list that you gave me, the stuff that you've put out, some of this even fell through on me. I didn't even catch all the stories that you had. And I've been trying to follow everything you do because you've been doing some yeoman's work on it. And, and that's what I really wanted to bring you on to, to highlight some of these stories this, that you've covered uh, recently, not just throughout 2023. Uh, and what I'm going to do is put this in the, in the show notes today so anybody can get full access to all the stories that you've covered for Washington Times because uh, you, do, you do some really great work. And one of the things I recently talked about was the importance of reading the fine print. And by that is read the entire story. And, and I, I really try to hold myself accountable to that, having written certainly nowhere close to the number of pieces that you have, but I've written, you know, maybe like a dozen of them. And, uh, and I, I put a lot of work into it. And I want people to read start to finish because it's jam packed with the information. I don't feel like there's any fluff. And you're, you're great at that. There's really not a lot of flowery language. We're talking about it was a dark, dark and stormy night. It's just hard hitting from the beginning to the end. So I'm going to throw in all the links that I can uh, on this podcast so people will get access to it. And I want to highlight uh, some of the stories, though, uh, while I've got you here, because I think that, that they're really important. And, and the first of which uh, that I'm going to pull up right now is this story. Whistleblower says, FBI threatened to fire agents who criticize emphasis on the January 6th investigations. Can you, uh, can you give us a little rundown on that? And then we'll leave up to people to, to read into it more themselves. That's right. So what we have here was that you had uh, FBI Deputy Director Paula Bate. He threatened to fire agents uh, and other bureau employees because, you know, obviously there's many other uh, employees out there other than agents who uh, said that there are disparities in the uh, responses to the uh, U.S. Capitol riot in 2021, i.e. January 6th. And according to this affidavit that was delivered to Congress, uh, this is an anonymous protected whistleblower disclosure. It said that Paula Bate made these threats in a secured video teleconference with these special agents. Now, as you very well know, this is like a, a closed video uh, back and forth uh, with these uh, with these video with these uh, FBI personnel, and he and, the, and and specifically with the special agents in charge of the bureau in the 56 field offices. Now, Mr. Bate told these supervisors that some agents were questioning this massive investigative response to the uh, pro-Trump demonstrators that on, on January 6th. Now, this is a very interesting because according to the affidavit, quote, Abate told the audience that anyone who questions the FBI response or his decisions regarding the response to January 6th, they didn't belong in the FBI and should find a different job or something to that effect. That's what the affidavit said. So can you imagine, Stephen, the the uh, response to that affidavit uh, when the uh, special agents in charge went back to their field offices. Well, I can and I, I do because th that sort of mirrors my my own experience. When I came forward and mm -hmm. I had discussions with 
people within my office, they said that there were these conversations in the very near aftermath of the January 6th incident actually happening and how they were going to approach it. It was nationwide calls all the time because of the amount of resources and assets that were going to be devoted towards it. And when I had some concerns, people who I had good rapport with, good working relationships with, immediately activated on it. And then that's really what facilitated me eventually being removed fairly quickly. I mean, you think federal government, it's like a battleship. I don't know how you, you turn it this fast, but I got walked out in 30 days and it's not like I committed a crime or anything. Uh, that that jives with my own experience, because if that was a prime directive saying anyone who questions this needs to be completely eliminated from the equation or, or just we're going to surgically remove them, then I think that uh, that that's consistent with, with this hearing. And then um, it and I'm, I'm actually relieved to hear that somebody was on those calls because that's somebody who is in a position of senior executive leadership. Hopefully there's they're going to be able to you know, continue to push that out. So that was that was an excellent story. And I'm glad you delved into it. And that's not the only one that you've actually talked about with the, the deputy director, Paula Bate. Um, I think there was another one related to January 6th that you talked about. And that was him telling the subordinates to hide their informants from January 6th. Correct? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I mean, there was a there is once again, a very similar call. Once again, it was a um, Paula Bate, deputy director of the FBI, talking to the same special agents in charge of the 56 field offices. And he told them that, uh, you know, no one is to talk about the confidential human sources that were in the crowd over on January 6th. This was a, you know, basically this whole unicorn, quote unquote, of the confidential human sources that were in the crowds uh, on January 6th, basically deny it, okay? They weren't there, don't talk about it. And that was the gist of the follow-up call, okay? And that's why every time you've seen uh, Christopher Ray, the director of the uh, FBI, go, on, go to these public hearings before Congress and he's asked about that. He kind of like waffles. Have you noticed that? He goes, well, uh, that's complicated. And of course, I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> and anytime you see a witness kind of waffle, whether it's in court or it's uh, over at these or at these congressional hearings, then you know that you, you kind of got them. OK, uh, because when they say it, it's not yes, it's not no. Yeah, you know that at this point they've they've pretty much confirmed that there are confidential, or there were rather confidential human sources, or or people who were generally uh, related to the FBI. The thing that I'm curious about here, Cian, is that it wasn't just the FBI or people related to the FBI who were in those crowds. Uh, other alphabet agencies are people, other people related to alphabet agencies were also in that crowd, apparently. And that's something that nobody wants to talk about. Yes, I'm, I'm, man, we are parallel thinking on this. And I don't know if it's maybe the, just the rep, cultural reputation of when people think federal law enforcement, immediately the default is, well, the FBI is the all-knowing, all-seeing eye that exists for the federal government. I think that's mm -hmm. certainly an aspect to it. But what people don't realize is the Department of Homeland Security has a budget that is 10 times what the FBI's is. And they're, right. they're charged, and they sort of have this, uh, this 
ill-defined mission. So mission creep there is rampant. But if you have to actually assign some sort of lane for them to be working in, you would think it would be something like national security on the homeland. It's the homeland security department. And that would, you would think then encompass domestic terrorism, which is why they uh, most likely had significant numbers of people at January 6th. And, and look, it's a major security event. I, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have had anything there, um, but I do think that the problem that we find with so many of these, these informants are, especially in national security, in order to become a productive informant for an FBI or for a Department of Homeland Security, you have to provide information. And the only way you can provide information from a group that's not going to be doing anything nefarious or illegal is you tend to push people to do things that they're not predisposed to do, which is what we saw with the entrapment case. It happened in the Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. And I think what we saw happening with a lot of these groups on January 6th, who were just there to attend the president's speech and, and actually protest outside the Capitol. And then an informant has the ability and access to people to push them to say, hey, let's take this up a notch because they're going to personally profit. They're going to be able to go back to their handler at at whatever agency it is and say, look, there's there's people that there did some things and I can provide you that. And it was all driven by the actual informant's action and leadership within the movement. That's the thing that uh, is so concerning is the fact that all this information is being kept away. And now, you know, and this information has been around for a while, but we're finding out through the House Administration Committee uh, especially with these uh, documents that are being withheld uh, because the, the House Administration Committee said, okay, all, all of these January 6th depositions uh, that were supposed to be given and transferred over to Congress, uh, the January 6th Select Committee, they handed them over to where? Oh, DHS. Why are they over at DHS? Okay, all of these witness uh, interviews, uh, all of these text messages, all of these emails, according to uh, the, the the chair of oversight, uh, the the subcommittee over at the House administration, you know, we are we're we're finding out through uh, Barry Loudermilk, he's a chair of that committee. Wait, why is it that all of these uh, witness de depositions and so on and so forth, why are they over at DHS? Why is it that we can't get a hold of them? You know, and uh, definitely check out my latest story on this because uh, Benny Thompson, I went up to him and I said, and I was just like, okay, where are all these witness depositions? Where are all these uh, emails? Where are, where are all these video depositions? And he's like, he's like, I don't know. Oh, of course not. You can never know. Well, I mean, I there's a know. lot of problems with Benny Thompson where he was actually pushing the TSA uh, to do things immediately but after January 6th before the actual committee and yes. he didn't control and, their funding. Right. He goes, I have no idea. He's like, he, he pretty much said what you see or rather what you saw is what you got. As far as the public hearings, everything else is gone. Wow. And he, he, he pretty much played a big circle game with me. That's it's just incredibly frustrating. And I mean, look, you've been, you've been in it with Congress for a while. I think it's probably par for the course all too often, which is not what we want to do. Um, I want to transition to another story here that I think is probably really uh, it, it compelling. And that was the, uh, the FBI agent who 
they were encouraging to publicly or to to actually erase his public vitriol against former President Trump. Um, and it is uh, it's it's a doozy because there's a lot of of the FBI likes to talk about how it's an apolitical agency, and here they want to keep the appearance of that so much that uh, that they had this guy who's going to be going be in charge of the actual territory of, of Mar-a-Lago. And he had a pretty negative opinion. Look, you're, you're free to have your own political opinions, but uh, I think just having the gall uh, and the hubris to put that out when you're in a position of authority uh, to begin with is a problem. And then certainly a problem when people in, even higher ranking on in the ladder uh, are trying to cover that up on your behalf. Uh, can you can you dig into that one for us a little bit? Yeah, sure. We have there uh, the, the Jeffrey Veltry. He is now the uh, special agent in charge over at the Miami field office, but he didn't start there, okay? Uh, so we have here is, uh, you have a top of FBI officials. He, before he went to the uh, uh, Miami field office, they, they ordered him to uh, scrub his Facebook page to delete all these anti-Trump, you know, vitriol, shall we say, before they even promoted him to uh, head up the uh, field office over in Miami. Now, where's uh, the, you know, who hangs out over around the uh, Miami area? You know, it's the, uh, it's basically Mar-a-Lago. Uh, now, Mar-a-Lago isn't necessarily in Miami proper, but it, it the Miami field office, as you very well know, Stephen, covers uh, Mar-a-Lago. But according to this whistleblower disclosure that was sent to the House Judiciary Committee, this whistleblower said that Jeffrey Veltry was promoted uh, a year earlier to become the uh, the the SAC over in the Miami over in the Miami office because he said that Mr. Veltri quote adamantly and vocally uh, was against Trump and uh, and said FBI Director Christopher Ray and Deputy Director Paula Bate and Executive Assistant Director Jennifer Moore who's no longer with the FBI but was at the time they were involved in directing uh, Veltri to cleanse his uh, social media. So, quote, the home of President Donald Trump is located in the area of responsibility of the Miami field office. And it is well known that Veltri was adamantly and vocally anti-Trump. And the, the, the disclosure said, which, you know, this was a, a disclosure that we had. And that Ray Abate and more wanted to ensure that Veltri appeared non-political. Veltri was ordered to remove all of his Facebook and social media posts that were anti-Trump. Now, where did Veltri come from? Veltri came from the security division of, of the Bureau. And the security division, otherwise known as SECD, uh, they are in charge of granting as well as, as far as I know, as well as yanking uh, security clearances for FBI agents such as yourself. And they, and they were, had become extraordinarily politicized as we have come to know. Uh, apparently, uh, Veltri was, was among a team of uh, people who were yanking security clearances based on uh, whether or not an FBI employee was too conservative, uh, whether or not they were too Christian, if they had some sort of uh, very military background, if they didn't take the jab. So this is a very interesting situation that uh, when he had these very, when he had, had these apparently very political Facebook posts 
that were anti-Trump, uh, apparently they, he was told to take them down before he went to Miami, which from what I understand uh, is a launching pad to hire promotions in the uh, over at the FBI. Isn't that true? Well, certainly anywhere that you're going to become a special agent in charge, it's going to be a launching pad. Uh, you could eventually become an assistant deputy in charge of one of the larger offices, like in Los Angeles or New York or something like that, or go back to headquarters. Uh, to me, though, this is a Rosetta Stone type of story because it involves so many of the moving parts there. You say like the politicization that is going on within the security division and, and they're targeting profiling actual employees of the FBI uh, for having what they deem to be problematic or questionable loyalty to the United States because they have uh, they, they were a Marine or they are uh, they have lots of children. <laughs> so that means they, they probably are conservative. And, and then this guy gets elevated. And to me. The, the other aspect to it that I think is worth noting is uh, the conflict of interest interpretation within the FBI is extremely broad. Uh, I, I can tell mm. you that there was a person in my office who had children that went to a school, a very large high school, let's say like 2000 students, and there was another child uh -huh. being investigated. And as a result of that, even though their children didn't swim in the same circles or in different grades, didn't interact, that agent was not allowed to be involved on a search warrant, not even in the investigative process oh, wow. they said conflict of interest cannot participate however we have somebody who's going to be the highest ranking person and put placed in the miami division to oversee this mar-a-lago search warrant and we, we can't put them in houston or st louis specifically to to miami so you have the question they they specifically wanted him in miami and then it went up to in fact, the executive assistant director of human resources, Jen Moore, and the deputy director, Paula Bate, and then the director of the FBI, Christopher Ray, all knowing this. Oh, wow. That's incredible. It, Holy yes. cow. The, and and that, that to me, it means they wanted him specifically in that division. They, there's always <laughs> always ample opportunities, if, especially if you're a chosen child, you're, you're a preferred candidate, they will get you to a launching pad if wherever that needs to be obviously you know there's other factors at play if you're you know you want to live in, in a warm climate miami is probably pretty good for you but if you're just an ambitious creature go to detroit it seems to be a lot of people that get elevated out of detroit <laughs> <laughs> which which by the way uh it's what's what's, what's also interesting about veltry that you know I wouldn't say it's it's being glossed over but i made sure i put the i put it in, in this piece he joined the Bureau in about 2002, and he definitely worked his way up, up the ranks, mind you. But uh, by 2016, he had been promoted to the uh, Chief of the Civil Rights Unit in the Criminal Investigative Division. And there he oversaw the management of all hate crime, color of law, human trafficking, and Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act investigations in the country. So, okay. Yeah. What does that mean? That that is the face yes. act. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that means he's going after pro-lifers. Yes. Okay? Yeah. I mean, statistically, it's, they've charged it 130 times. 126 of them were uh, at abortion clinics. Four of them were for churches. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely a slanted exactly. charging that we're seeing there, and it's and it's, it's a political charge that uh that that is just in the in the tool belt and look i have my own experiences with it when the dobbs jackson decision was leaked 
I actually reached out to crisis pregnancy centers because I thought that they might be uh, at risk for a, a, an attack or some sort of vandalism. And then I also thought that they could be a good resource for human trafficking. There might be women that, that pass through there uh, and that could be a, a great out, outlet for us to liaison with. But when I came back, I was told, that's great. Here's a attaboy helmet sticker for you, Steve. But we really want you to focus on the abortion clinics. Oh, interesting. <laughs> uh, interesting. But hey, look, what you, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I, I, would, I would really like to no. get your reaction to this one last thing here. And this is not original sure. to you. Um, but uh, we, we keep hearing that uh, you know, the FBI is it's a reputation. It's, it's a glory hound. It's, it, they're always seeking the good headlines. Um, but because of people like you, uh, they're in, in short supply these days. And uh, that's why I was, I was very tickled when I saw this, this uh, press release that came from the FBI itself. And let me share this here. FBI, HSI, which is Homeland Security uh, investigation, leads to a historic war crimes indictment. And if you look down at the picture here, you see everybody's represented uh, from Homeland Security, there's Secretary Mayorkas, you got Christopher Wray, you got Merrick Garland, Paula Bates, Lisa Monaco. I mean, it's a hodgepodge, everybody who's important right there. And uh, the, the article goes on to say how they charge this crime for the first time in its existence. It's been on the books for 27 years. And then now finally the FBI is using it to charge four Russian uh, actors, four, four Russian soldiers for torturing an American citizen in Ukraine. If you read through it, they, they did some really horrible things to this, this individual. Um, mm. But knowing what I know about federal law enforcement, and that's something that I actually even talked about, and you see here bullet points they charge with unlawful confinement, torture, inhumane treatment. Um, at no point, though, after they announced this, this sweeping indictment, did they say how these four subjects were actually in custody? So it seems to me that this might be a, a virtue signal indictment because these these uh, subjects are probably still on the battlefield fighting on behalf of Russia in this conflict. Uh, interesting. Very interesting point. So basically, are, wait, hold on a second, Stephen. Are you saying that they just did this just for the headline? Oh. Just so, yeah. I, I mean, are, are you saying that like they just did this so... It could have the word war and crime in there. And then when people read it, maybe like, and, and their eyes scan over a few graphs in there, they'll see the word Ukraine and they'll see the word Russia and they'll see a couple of interesting, you know, you know power words, you know, uh, littered around the uh, story. And they'll say, wow, our FBI in action. Woo. And, but, but not really realize that these guys who are, obviously so horrible so horrendous aren't in custody yet i look i uh, i'm speculating only i i'm just giving an educated opinion on this but there's a reason that i filled an entire show for this podcast where i just looked at the headlines and it said fbi arrests a drug trafficker or someone who committed a gun crime and, and then you actually read paragraph i don't know two and it says that it was a patrolman who pulled him over on a traffic stop that's how you get to almost a 100 conviction rates and that's how you get the headlines. People don't read the fine print, which is what the uh, the FBI is is banking on, and that is why uh, you are the bane of their existence with this uh, this slew of of 
of, of pieces that you put out in 2023, <laughs> which I'm happy to share. We'll, we're definitely going to put it in the notes for people. Um, and, I, and I thank you for your time today. And uh, it's always it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You become a friend. You're actually the first person that had me uh, on radio. You were filling in on Will Cow's show. I'd done some TV and podcasts, but that was my first live radio. Um, I was on in the car on my way to a football game, and my dad. Uh, had to be, I told him, Dad, you got to be really quiet because he was driving and we were on the interstate. Uh, so, but th thank you for everything you're doing here, and, and thank you for your time today. Um, anything that you want to you plug for people can uh, can find what you're writing about. Absolutely, and congratulations on the podcast. It seems like you're doing just fine. All right. Well, thank you very much, Kiri, um, and uh, and and go get them, and uh, and we'll, we'll be in touch soon. Sure thing. Bye bye. All right, Carrie Pickett. She's a uh, she's a writer for the Washington Times. You can follow her on X at Carrie Pickett. Pickett has one T. So uh, she's always worth a read. We're going to include in the notes uh, some links to the stories that she's put out. And this is a person who has been uh, extremely productive. Uh, in my offline conversations with her, she used to do a lot more television media, a lot to do uh, on radio. And then she just made the decision one day that it was detracting from the quality of her writing. She just couldn't devote the attention that she needed. And then she dove into that. And then and she's one of the few uh, people in Washington, D.C. as a journalist who I, I think is worth a read. Every word of everything she does, like I said to her, uh, and I'll repeat now, there's there's no fluff in in her writing. It's nothing but content. And it's not. 20,000 word pieces. It's not like a Taibbi or a Schellenberger um, article. They're they're short. She puts out multiple uh, pieces a week, and I think it's definitely worthwhile. Washington Times uh, has a nice asset there in Carrie Pickett, and, and I would encourage everybody to, uh, to give her a read when you can. But I want to transition into really what the focus of the show is today, and that is embracing the fight. And Carrie is, is someone who's doing that on the journalist side of things. Uh, and I think uh, we can do that in, in other ways, and we're seeing it. And we talk, I've talked about this before, that we need to recognize the situation culturally, what's going on in the country. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's essentially a cold civil war that's happening. And this cold civil war is involving two factions. One side that is very libertine in its mindset, uh, tends to be more conservative, tends to use phrases like, we all want the same thing. We can get along and we can coexist. No, they don't actually have the coexist bumper stickers, but they say, look, as long as you mow your lawn, I don't care the yard sign, the candidate on the yard sign in your yard. We will get along just fine. Uh, we can we can coexist together. And the other side has embraced a different mindset, and that is whatever we say is either required or banned, and you will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. And that's an irreconcilable difference. And the problem with the first group, the libertine group, is that they are failing to recognize the battlefield conditions. There's a metaphorical gunfight going on, and one side is showing up with their six shooters, and their second, and, and, and they're ready to go. And the other side is showing up with a letter from mommy that says Constitution at the top of it, and says, you can't shoot me. The rules say you can't. And the, uh, the communists... Who have embraced the fight at this point are saying we don't recognize your letter from mom that's a dead letter to us and as a result of that it's a it's an unequal scenario between the two sides 
and it's it's suboptimal. I've, I'm I'm loath to coming around to embracing the fight on this because I, I want to exist in in the world of of libertarianism where we can we can all get along. We all might disagree on tax rates or or one thing or another around the edges, but we all want to further and progress, and we want a better life for our kids and our grandkids than we had. Uh, but that's just not true. So, say having said that, I think we we want to look that maybe there's a sliver of hope. A, a sliver of silver lining in what's happening recently um, at a government level, at a cultural level, and even at a global level, where maybe the libertine side might be loath to accept what's going on, but nonetheless has embraced a little bit of it in, in this cultural war. Because if they don't, the cold civil war will transition to a hot civil war. And, it, and the question is then, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to be inconvenienced and uncomfortable, as I've talked about before, so that your kids don't have to engage in the kinetic fight, so that they do not have to do the next bull run Antietam? Well, maybe there's a few people who are actually embracing it. And uh, and I, I think that the, the first one that we saw recently was this congressional hearing that happened uh, with some of the presidents of elite institutions. Uh, it was Penn. MIT and Harvard, they were called in front of a House uh, House committee hearing. And, uh, and Elise Stefanik, who I'm not a big fan of uh, for, for political reasons, uh, but she she ran him through the ringer. And, and I, it's a little bit lengthy. It's about two minute video, but I do think that it's worth watching. And this is uh, Elise Stefanik uh, questioning the presidents from MIT, Penn and Harvard about standards on their universities as it pertains to calling for the genocide of Jews. We'll give this a play. At Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews. Does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it... Uh, is if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual. Targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of antisemitism? I will ask you one more time. 
does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When and it is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard code of conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. Unacceptable answers across the board. Good on Elise Stefanik for uh, for pointing that out. Uh, she's at least taking a stand on this. And look, uh, Elise Stefanik, uh, I, I don't agree with her on very much. I know she's high within the Republican leadership in the House. I think that this hearing is a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. Look, I, I don't know why the U.S. government is getting involved in education. I, I think we should uh, eliminate the Department of Education. Uh, there might be these federal grants that they're giving to the universities that, that it allows them to call the presidents in and, and give them a scolding. Why are we giving federal grants to elite institutions like Harvard and MIT and Penn that have endowments in the billions of dollars? They certainly don't need federal dollars. Uh, and I think this is an opportunity for congressional representatives to do the same thing they did when when Garrett and I testified, and that is they get their soundbite, they put it on the Twitter, and then you have people play it, like myself, guilty, guilty as charged. Uh, and so, so setting aside the motives, though, for the uh, for the congresswoman, I think that this is a mentality that is maybe a positive development. Not not that it leads to censorship of speech on universities. I'm, I think First Amendment absolutism is is the uh, is the route to go. It's it's my preferred route. It's what we have to have as a country if we're going to actually stand on our principles, our Bill of Rights, and and our First Amendment. But again, back to embracing the fight, we we need to accept the battlefield conditions and the battlefield conditions say that three university presidents at elite academic institutions are are saying that speech calling for genocide of one group of people is acceptable but if you were to say i don't know call for the genocide of a, another religious group or another racial group that would be a problem and, and the the fact that there's an a two-tiered system of justice on the university campus versus uh, the uh, what we what we would expect from a free speech environment uh, is a problem that needs to be called out. And and the highlighting of this is a move in the positive direction because it in fact indicates that maybe there's an appetite on the traditionally conservative, traditionally libertine side of the cold civil war that they are looking at what is going on culturally within the cold civil war and looking at the battlefield conditions and coming to the dark realization that the other side is already doing this and they must return serve uh, if we're going to bring this to any sort of semblance of balance a movement towards a mutually assured destruction uh, is necessary in order to stop both sides from turning the launch keys in the future. There needs to be a, a return to normalcy. And in order to do that, we have to basically say, all right, your turn to bleed. We've been bleeding for so long. We need to return, metaphorically, we need to return fire here so that neither side is then incentivized to fire going forward. 
And so that, that was a, an interesting hearing because there were some downstream effects to it. And if, if move on to the story that we saw, this is from Axios and, uh, and the reaction to this hearing from, from the public and, and from significant people in the public and prominent people in the public is, is worth noting. And this story from Axios, Penn, who was one of the universities represented at the hearing, loses a $100 million donation over the anti-Semitism hearing. Scroll through it and uh, come to find out that there's a, a gentleman who, who had pledged to give uh, University of Pennsylvania $100 million. He's a, uh, he's, a, he's a business guy. He's given to other universities too. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Stone Ridge Asset Management, Ross Stevens. And he pledged to give $100 million, but uh, after seeing this hearing is now looking for almost like a breach of contract so that uh, he can pull that money back uh, and read, read down and says in the backstory, this isn't the first time that Stevens has used his pocketbook to express disagreement with Penn policies. Earlier, he redirected a different $100 million gift from Penn's business school to the University of Chicago. So obviously he's not, uh, he's not just uh, a, a graduate or an alumnus of one particular university and keeps sending them money so he can get his name on a building. He's trying to push things, I guess, to, uh, to further academic excellence across the, uh, the business schools. Um, and now because of what we saw at this hearing and his displeasure with it, he is withdrawing that gift from the University of Penn, uh, which, which is probably, probably a positive development. It, this is, uh, this is capitalism. This is a, this is the consumers being unhappy with the way that their money is being directed and they're going to put it into something else that uh, they feel is more positive. So capitalism for the win yet again, honestly, if, if, if I had my, my preference, I would like to see, uh, Mr. Stevens maybe send his money over to, uh, to, to the trades. Why not contribute to some welding schools or some electrician, electrician schools or, some plumbing schools, uh, Mike Rowe works as it could use a hundred million dollars. I bet that that would go towards something where we're, we're in reading about it. Uh, we're very low in our supply of people that can do that sort of thing. Uh, and, and not necessarily go into $200,000, $300,000 of debt, getting a underwater basket weaving gender studies degree from an elite Ivy league university, uh, why don't you go ahead and, uh, go get a welding certificate and, uh, come out with no debt and making a hundred K within a, within a couple of years. So, so maybe Mr. Stevens could, could take that up into consideration. I know in university of Chicago, university of Pennsylvania are elite and, uh, and he probably, that's something that's close to his heart. He, he seems doing asset management. He's a, he's a hedge fund guy. So if that's something that he's passionate about, he's obviously going to, going to push for education in that regard. It, probably serves his business to have people coming out of, of elite institutions with the knowledge that for, then they're coming in ignorant to, to how to actually do that work. Uh, but I, if I could get into his ear for a minute, I would say maybe go to your local community college. They could, they could use a few million dollars to, to educate the next line of, of blue collar workers that we need in the country. So a similar story though, connected to this University of Pennsylvania. So you would think after losing a hundred million dollar donation that the, the president might be in a little bit of hot water. And indeed that has come to pass. This was uh, reported on Fox University of Penn president, Liz McGill steps down after controversial testimony on anti-Semitism. So there were some fallout ramifications here. Uh, the, uh, the sub headline says McGill faced major backlash after a testimony during the congressional hearing, obviously losing this $100 million donation 
probably was the the the, the coup de gras that uh, led to her oust. I would think the uh, the the board at the university said we need to move on to the next person. Uh, but reading through the article, it says that uh, the announcement came after days of intense pressure from Penn alumni and elected officials following McGill's botched Capitol Hill testimony earlier in the week after refusing, along with presidents of Harvard and MIT, to unequivocally condemn calls for the genocide of Jews. McGill reportedly faced the likelihood the school's board of trustees would fire her soon on Sunday. So looks like she resigned in lieu of becoming terminated from the University of Penn. I'm sure she will find a soft ground to land on some sort of think tank or something like that. Uh, they, the communists like to take care of their own, but nevertheless, it's, it's a positive development where there's actually pushback, not, not the positive development. Again, censorship's never a positive development, but a positive development in one side realizing that the other side is already involved in a fight, and unless they get off their duff and energetically confront the the challenges that we see, uh, then they're going to be swept aside as the as the hordes move up, move us further and further to the communist left. So, uh, to me, that the positive development again is not in the censorship, but it is in the energetic response that we're seeing. Again, let's move on to another story. This one talks about uh, this is from the Blaze. And we can see that a prominent rabbi resigns Harvard board position, diagnoses the rot infecting university, endemic and evil. So we saw the, the, the pushback against Penn. Another uh, party that was represented in, at Elise Stefanik's hearing was, was Harvard. And, and this, this was a rabbi who was a member of the board, and he was on a university anti-Semitism advisory board, which is crazy to me that you would actually, as a university have to assemble a board of experts to talk about how you shouldn't hate uh, a group of religious people. I have to scratch my head on, on the funding, but again, Harvard's a private university. Um, they should probably do um, what they want with their own money. Uh, again, why is the federal government giving them any sort of grants? They have billions of dollars in their endowment. And if they want to study why they should not hate Jewish people, uh, that's their prerogative. But if you read the story here, uh, this is, this is I, I think, again, another positive development where uh, I, I don't know about David Wolp. It's, he's a prominent American rabbi. Uh, I don't know where his politics are, but I don't think they particularly matter. I think this is a, a person who who saw the problem that's going on with, uh, with the university he's been connected to and says that there's nothing that I can do and say that's going to impact the trajectory here, and I'm no longer going to be a part of it. I'm going to divest myself. From, from Harvard in the hopes that this message will carry forward. And, and the, the best thing I can do is lay on this grenade and, uh, and, and hopefully save others because maybe Harvard will change its, its course uh, of, uh, of, uh, of anti-Semitism. And, and hopefully he could be the, the, his actions will galvanize reform that's necessary. Going through it, there's a quote here from, from uh, Rabbi Wolp, and it says, without rehashing all the obvious reasons that have been endlessly adumbrated online and with great respect for the members of the committee, the short explanation is that both events on campus and the painfully inadequate testimony reinforce the idea that I cannot make the sort of difference I had hoped. Well, he made a different sort of difference. He is going to step aside here and um, maybe push others to do the same. 
I think their their response to how our elite academic institutions have beclowned themselves over the last few years is, is noteworthy. There there needs to be a pushback. Again, censorship is never a good thing. More speech is always encouraged because the crazies and the evil will expose themselves. It's just a question of how much rope you want to give them to to do so. Censorship allows them to go and hide in the in the dark corners, but if we, there's no response from the libertine side, they will be swept. They will be assimilated. Resistance will be futile towards a side that says whatever is not banned is required. Moving on, outside of necessarily the, the people connected directly with the university context, this is a story from, from Breitbart, but it was reported uh, all over the place. Dave Portnoy, again, not a friend to the conservative right. Uh, you know, he, he, he has a few things. He, he's libertarian uh, on, he's a fiscal conservative, more he's, he's a successful businessman, but definitely a social liberal, uh, big time pro-abortion uh, guy. Uh, but he's, according to, to uh, Mr. Portnoy, he's, he vows to not hire anyone from Penn MIT or Harvard because of the calls for genocide um, on those campuses. So th that's that's a significant development where he's going to divest himself from even the hiring practice. I, I even have to question the legality of it to say that, but it might be necessary for, uh, for, for our society to, again, do away with the, with the, the problem of one side being all in on uh, progressing towards their communist utopian goal and the other side just kind of nodding along and saying, well, we all want the same things. Well, now it's strange bedfellow because Dave Portnoy again is, is not a friend to the, the social conservative right. He's definitely very liberal on, on a lot of these issues, but he actually sees value here uh, to, to pushing and, and coming out publicly and saying that you know, it's, it's not going to be good with him. He's not going to hire anyone that uh, sends their money to these universities, to these indoctrination camps where they go there and then are absorbed by the Borg and taught that it's okay to go out and call for the genocide of Jewish people. So again, an energetic response. Uh, I would think that uh, owning a media outlet, Mr. Portnoy, is, is probably very pro-First Amendment. He, he's not... Uh, not down with censorship, but at the same time, he exact he is embracing the fight here that that is uh, on us. That it might be necessary in order to bring and restore balance. There needs to be a retaliation in sort. There needs to be a response. There needs to be a counterpunch from from the uh, from the libertine conservative side to to bring us to at least some sort of stasis where the one side is not free to just throw punches and the other side doesn't even raise its arms to, to attempt to block. Move on to another story. And, and, and this is, um, this is outside of the university setting. And, uh, and if this is the, the thing that we're always talking about, um, on the right, as far as the, the boycotting efforts that have gone on and, and there's no, what there's no uh, company now that's a, a bigger punchy bag. Well, maybe Bud Light, but Disney, I'll tell you what, man, that's a company that has taken it on the chin for the last few years. Uh, and they're in my home state. So it's something that I've paid attention to quite a bit. They've had flop after flop uh, uh, on the on the silver screen. And now uh, it appears that the South Carolina treasurer, 
is removing Disney from the state's investment portfolios. They're actually going to divest the South Carolina government pensions from investing in Disney. So it's just yet another financial hit. This is uh, actually coming from the uh, from Curtis Loftus, who is the state treasurer for South Carolina. This is from his, his website. Um, and he reported on December 5th, so relatively recently, that uh, he has removed the Walt Disney Company from its approved investment list. They're going to divest their investments there. Uh, and who knows what other sort of state pensions will follow suit. And this is on the back of, uh, of a report from CNBC, which I'll share right now. And it's talking about, again, how there's been so many flops from Disney, which was cash money relatively recently, especially with Pixar. I mean, they just had to put out anything and it would be automatically a billion dollar movie. If it had a Marvel logo or, uh, or some sort of connection to Pixar, guaranteed billion dollars. But uh, not so much, especially in 2023. And uh, it, I think that's that's a result of the reputation that Disney has had uh, when it, it went to war, essentially, with the state of Florida over the parental rights bill that they, they like to label as the don't say gay bill. Uh, but it was about parental rights. It didn't actually mention the word gay in the bill. But if the, the Disney took a stand on that one and decided to go to war with the state of Florida, and then as a result, lost their uh, their self-government status and is now uh, taking, it, taking it on the chin at the box office. Uh, look at uh, some of, some of the, the movie figures that came out. Uh, Elemental and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 were successful theatrically. Disney's recent track box office record has filled with misses. Lightyear and Strange World were duds in 2022. This year, the Haunted Mansion and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny have bombed for Disney. The Marvels, after the worst opening weekend for a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, is on its way to being a major disappointment. The Little Mermaid and Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania failed to meet analyst expectations for ticket sales. Well, that's because those movies are for kids. And parents are not fans of a company that says that it's okay to trans the kids. I know that uh, we used to have Disney plus in our house and uh, it was, it was a moment where look, there's the classics. You, you I love my kids to watch Pinocchio, to watch Bambi, to, to watch the Lion King, but uh, I'm not down with what Disney has been putting out recently over the last few years. And we parted ways with Disney plus and you know what? My kids don't miss it that much. It's really, uh, they're, they they can watch other things that that I can I can screen for them, and uh, and it's not really been a, a hit to us when it comes to entertainment value, and and I don't think that I'm alone in that, which is why I'll take you to a, a report from Yahoo Finance, which is talking about the the Walt Disney Company's actual stock value. If you just look at their ticker, um, it a one share of stock for Disney is worth now about ninety two dollars. Um, which if you look over the last five years, it would appear that Disney has not earned a penny. They've actually lost significant value over the last five years. So if you're an investor and you bought Disney stock, you figure, all right, this is what I'm, I'm going to bequeath this to my kids when I die. This stock is going to be going to be worth its weight in gold. Well, over the last five years where we saw a stock market skyrocket and you would think your, your average investment portfolio, you want to see it going anywhere from 10 to 12 percent increased a year you've not just stayed the same you've lost money investing in the walt disney corporation 
And that I think is a direct response to parents being unhappy with what Disney's put out and the controversial stands that they've taken. And people are speaking with their wallet. Money talks, money screams. Uh, and, and apparently the Walt Disney Corporation hasn't quite heard the message yet. Uh, from what I've read, they actually might uh, be facing a, a lawsuit from their shareholders because the shareholders know that Disney is deliberately tanking its own stock uh, because of the the stands that it's taken on these cultural issues that are uh, that are con that are not in the best interest of the company's financial portfolio. Um, transition to uh, to one more story here that I think is 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 noteworthy for a couple of reasons. And does anybody remember uh, about a month or two ago in New Mexico when the governor there tried to take all the guns away from everybody in Albuquerque and New Mexico really is a crazy state. It's, it's transitioned to deep blue for the most part. I, I was always told it was sort of quirky. Look, they elected Gary Johnson as their governor at one point, but then they had Janet Napolitano at another point. So it's really inconsistent, but it's, it's trended heavily Democrat in the last few election cycles. And uh, their current governor is, is a far left communist. So she saw fit to try to take all the guns away. And that was the one issue that seemed to be the, uh, the atypical of your, your far left American communists, where people in New Mexico stood up and said, no, that's not going to fly. You actually had sheriffs say that they weren't going to enforce the governor's order. And you also had the attorney general, who is a dyed-in-the-wool leftist himself, come out and say that he would not enforce that order. Uh, now the same attorney general, again, far left guy, saying he's suing Mark Zuckerberg and Meta, which is the uh, parent company for Facebook, alleging that the apps are a breeding ground for predators. Now, is this a, a pushing back against social media? Is this embracing the fight that's at hand? I don't know. Uh, just looking at a brief cursory look through his record, he might be seeing uh, in some political ambition there where you have a term limited governor in New Mexico and, and he's the attorney general. He might be looking to get some, some cross party, some bipartisan support as not being a, a radical leftist. Uh, but regardless of what his motivations are here, uh, I think from the conservative libertarian right, this is again, embracing the fight, not just rolling over and taking what social media has put out there, and especially in the last few years where we've seen censorship of one side and not the other, and, and also a, uh, a cultural rot that has crept in where the, as, as the, uh, the attorney general here, he is, he's echoing the, the sentiments that have been filed by dozens of other states against the social media giant because there's perverts that are on these social media companies and, uh, and they need to be brought to heel. And again, I say this as somebody who's, who's always traditionally been very libertarian and said, look, that's a private company. You, you can't get involved in what they're doing. But I think to say that now at this point where these, these companies have been so ensconced with what, uh, what we, how we share information and how they intersect with our first amendment, our ability to have free speech and how the government liaises with these social media companies to in fact infringe through a third party, a fringe on your first amendment rights to speech and expression and assembly. 
assembling via social media is a thing. You might not be able to, to get a, a gaggle of people from across the country to meet up at one location, but you can certainly do it virtually. But now the social media companies are putting the kibosh on your ability to do that. And they're doing it at the behest of a government. So they, they have forfeited their, their right to say we're a private organization now if you're doing the bidding of the government. That's something that, that we need to look at and we need to examine. Um, and it, it's, it's almost like that, that old argument that originally the right pushed back on. They said, you know, is, a, is social media a utility? Is it like the uh, electrical wires? Is it like the plumbing that then the city or the county or the state government can have authority over uh, because it is infrastructure? Uh, is social media infrastructure? At this point, I think there's a, a good argument to be had that it is, especially when all of our thought leaders are using social media to communicate with the country. Uh, this is their, 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 their preferred means to do that. And if the social media companies are in fact colluding, for lack of a better word, with government to stop free exercise of speech, they are by by essence, a, an extension of the government. And it's going to be on the state's attorney general uh, or even district attorneys, as we're seeing in Fulton County, a district attorney can charge a, a former president with a crime. It's gonna be on these, these local and state prosecutors to bring these suits forward if they're going to, in fact, ensure a mutually assured destruction that's going to be necessary to bring a semblance of balance back uh, because as long as one side has not embraced the fight, it's not a fair fight. And uh, and I, I think that's that's sort of going to be my, my parting message for, for this episode of the American Radicals podcast. I know I talked uh, a, at length, and I'm, I'm grateful for, uh, for Kerry Pickett maybe taking the burden off me for a little bit. Um, guys, again, today uh, was, was interesting because we, we talked about a push against this, this in, in, encroaching mindset that we have on the, uh, the political left. And unless one side adopts at least the energy, at least the mindset that we need to return fire metaphorically, metaphorically through legal means, through cultural means, through an acceptance of what has been going on in the last few years, uh, there, you're, you don't have a chance to return serve. And it's it's going to be an asymmetrical battle from one side to the other. So I, I do think that there's worthwhile discussion to have. Um, and I thank you for your time today. Uh, thank you for, for joining the American Radicals podcast. You can follow us on social media at amradpod. You can follow me at real Steve friend. And while you're here, thank you very much for uh, for giving us a like and a follow for the Rumble channel. Um, and, and I want to close it out here, as always, with a, uh, a recognition of, of my, my co-host and, uh, and partner in crime, Garrett O'Boyle, the, uh, the family sweatshop. We'll, we'll make sure that we keep his orders coming in. He's been gone for a few days, so I think that those walls are not sweaty at all. So the sweatshop needs to get up and running, especially in time for Christmas. So if you are in need of a Christmas gift, if you get it in in the next uh, couple of days, I think uh, you could probably get it to mom, dad, brother, sister, whoever is in need of a hoodie, a T-shirt, a ball cap, some ranger panties. Go to the-suspendables.com and, uh, and you will find all your needs there. 
and uh, and and definitely uh, help support Garrett, help support his family during the holiday season. Um, it, it they make great products. I, I wear the t-shirts uh, just about every day, and then they're not just you put them in the wash and they disintegrate. They're high quality, and uh, you will start some interesting conversations with people because they're going to see that FBI badge turned upside down, eagles down. And wonder why? Well, it's because it's an agency in distress, as Carrie was talking to us about earlier um, today. So, thank you again for your time today. Uh, we will see you on the next episode again, the American Radicals podcast, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday at noon on Rumble. Enjoy your day. God bless you. been listening to the voice of the suspendables on the american radicals podcast follow us on rumble.com slash am rad pod